Ephesians chapter 4. Open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're studying the book of Ephesians as we have themed it, the work and wealth of God in Jesus Christ. And we're looking at what Jesus has done in the life of a believer after conversion in this section in chapter 4. You'll remember that in the first verse of chapter 4, which really begins what many call the, the praxis, the practical section of Ephesians, Paul leads with this imperative, walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, if, you're, if you've confessed Christ, if you say you're a believer, act like it. Don't have an incongruence between what you confess and how you live. That's absolutely blatant in verse 17. Do not walk anymore as the Gentiles walk or live. Unbelievers change in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, verse 18, in their ignorance and the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, they become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, you did not learn Christ in this way. There's a change. But you, you're different than you were. And then he outlines this simple three-step process for change, which may be the most succinct in the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. Verse 22, that in reference to your former life, you lay aside the old you, the old self, being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Step two, you be renewed in your thinking, in the spirit of your mind. You think fundamentally different. All actions come from thinking. So change your thinking. And then you put on the new you, the new self, which is like God. It's in the likeness of God. It imitates God, which he'll come back to in chapter 5, be imitators of God. Then he begins a list, a list of imperatives, a list of, of things that you need to do, to be, to change. We've broken those down. We're going to be looking at each of these commands in, uh, in a sermon by itself. Last time, verse 25, tell the truth. Today, it'll be temper your anger. Then we'll say work to share. Then watch your words. Then refashion your relationships in verses 31, 32. For today, we're going to be looking at what it means to temper your anger. I, I, I hope you see there's a double entendre there in the word temper. Two simple verses, verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. One of the most important parts of your growth as a Christian is is how you develop and hone your hermeneutics. Now, that's a big word, but it's a serious part of your faith and your growth. Hermeneutics are the principles of interpretation that you apply to understand and then to make application of the Scriptures, of the Bible. What principles do you use to understand it? Those are hermeneutics. Your hermeneutic, how you interpret the Bible, how you understand it, is the bedrock foundation of your entire belief system as a Christian. 
How your hermeneutic goes is how your life goes. It's that radical and that important. I think you've heard me say on many occasions that preaching, preaching is really public hermeneutics. In other words, the preacher's job is not only to explain what the Bible says and what it implies by what it said, but the preacher's job is to teach and exemplify principles of biblical hermeneutics so that you could, whoever stands in this pulpit, say, I understand what they did with that text and how they understand it and how they apply it. I can do that myself. We come this morning to a passage of Scripture that demands serious attention and application of our hermeneutics. One of the principles of hermeneutics, probably most foundational, is to understand the nature of the Bible, the nature of Scripture. 66 books that function as one. God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. His message to humanity. His message of salvation. One of the principles of bibliology, of our commitment to Scripture, is that the Bible contains no contradictions. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. That being said, I believe that. How do we reconcile two commands in the same paragraph in the book of Ephesians that seem to contradict each other outright? Have you seen this before? Look down at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, clamor and slander, be put away from you. Do not be angry. Pretty simple, huh? First two words of verse 26. Be angry. Looks like a contradiction to me at first glance, doesn't it? But it's not. Because hermeneutically, when you understand how to interpret each of those phrases, you, you understand what's being said so that what appears to be a contradiction in the beginning, upon further review, as they say in the NFL, is not. We'll understand how those two seemingly contradictory commands come together as the same command by applying sensible hermeneutics going through this passage should make sense as we go along. Now, with our proposition this morning, we're going to be talking about tempering your anger. How do you temper your anger? Well, to temper means to act as a neutralizing, counterbalancing force to something or to take control of. That's what it means to temper. So to temper your anger means to understand how to regulate and control anger. And in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 we find four commands, four imperatives to temper your anger. Our outline, I got to admit, some, some texts are really hard to outline and diagram. This was pretty easy, four commands. It's, it's, the reason there are four imperatives in the proposition there is because there are four commands in these two verses, four commands, four imperatives to temper your anger. We're going to break them down one at a time, and I think you'll see how they build a theology of our passions that will serve your soul. The first way to, first imperative to temper your anger is to control righteous anger. To learn how to control righteous anger. First two words, be angry. 
out of context, that's quite a statement, is it not? Can you imagine telling your six-year-old parents, hey, don't be so mad. The Bible says be angry. What a command. Be angry. What a command. This is probably not something that we regularly ask our kids to obey. But it's a command from God's holy word nonetheless. You may notice in the New American Standard that the first two phrases of this verse are in small caps. That indicates by the translator, it's his way of letting us know that these words are a quotation or at least an allusion to an Old Testament passage. This is an allusion to probably Psalm 4. We know from the rest of the Bible that anger is wrong, unequivocally wrong. But a Christian who's pursuing maturity has a kind of anger that's not wrong, but is under control. We're supposed to be like God. We're walking in the newness of ourself, which is in His likeness, in verse 24. And we're told to imitate God in verse 1 of chapter 5. And God is an angry God. He's a loving God. He's a loving, kind God. He's a merciful God. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1 tells us. God has a righteous and holy anger. However, like God, we're supposed to be slow to be angry. I've told you many times, one of my favorite Hebrew words is the, is the word translated in Exodus 33, God is, in 34, God is slow to anger. And it means he has a long nose. <laughs> what that means is that I still, I still remember my, my father's face just like it was yesterday, that when we get angry, our, we squinch our noses. You t- you, why are you doing that? Most of you are going right now. Anyway, uh, that when you get angry, your nose kind of squishes up and it says, God has a long nose. He just doesn't, doesn't get out of sorts. Now, just for a moment, before we dive into anger, where does anger come from? How does anger work? This is important. How does anger work? Now, follow along. Just track with me here. All of us have desires. Desires create expectations. Unmet expectations create disappointment. And that disappointment generates an anger response in our emotions. Isn't that easy to track along? Desires create expectations. Unmet expectations create disappointment. And that disappointment generates anger. That's one kind of anger. Another kind of anger is we become angry when we perceive a miscarriage of justice. Look, every police show on television works on this. They spend 45 minutes getting you angry at the bad guy so that they can make you feel good about the justice that's served to him in the end. So anger is an emotional evaluation Response to something we believe and feel to be displeasing or wrong. 
if it's displeasing to us or if it's wrong to us, one of the reflexes of our souls is, and our emotions, our heart, is, is to be angry about it. In a real sense, anger can be understood as your personal, internal, judicial system in your heart. All of us have a judicial system operative in our heart. It's always working, making evaluations, being the, the accuser and the judge and the executioner of justice in our heart. One writer said it like this, anger is the emotionally aroused form of judgment against a perceived evil. That's good. So here's the question. What makes you angry? What gets you angry? And I'm not talking about what frustrates you. We just, we're, we, we're just so silly. Oh, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. Come on. Frustration is anger. I was removing a stump from my yard this last week, and I was getting frustrated. At least that's what I was telling myself. This is so frustrating. When the reality was, I started whacking that, that stump, and I was, I was angry, enjoying it. Um, but you can counsel me later. What gets you passionate? What makes you upset and angry? Are they the things that bother you? Or are they the things that offend God? That's the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. Anger because of something that, that bothers you is sinful. Anger because of something that bothers God, that offends God, that's what we call righteous anger. In a very real sense, your deepest priorities can be revealed by what makes you mad, what makes you angry. When Paul commands us here, be angry, th this means to have an anger that is not sinful. How do I know that? Spoiler alert, the next phrase, do not sin. <laughs> be angry, do not sin. So we often call this righteous anger, not sinful anger, in other words. Righteous anger, let me be, be, be as clear as I can. Righteous anger disdains and abhors true injustices. Every immorality and ungodliness of every expression. Righteous anger disdains and abhors true injustices. Every immorality and ungodliness of every expression. How do we know that's what's being in play here? Because if Paul says, be angry, and the next phrase he does, says, don't be sinfully angry, then the only way we can be angry is righteously, like God. Obviously, not all anger is sinful, or Paul wouldn't command it here. John Stott helps, helps with these words. There's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. It's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? There's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant. We should be indignant and not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also, end quote. So righteous anger 
is being angry at the same things that anger God. Pretty simple. That's the only way we can righteously be angry if we're angry about and at the same things that God displays his anger toward. Even with that, the half-brother of our Lord, James, tells us in James 1, 19 and 20, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We've already studied this from a different perspective. In chapter 4, verse 2, when we looked at with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance with one another, that word patience there, macrothemia, means being slow to anger. Slow to anger, not quick-tempered, not quick to respond in anger. Beware. It is possible for even righteous anger to morph into sinful anger. That's why it should not be allowed to exist even overnight. So when Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, he doesn't say righteous or sinful anger. He says all your anger. We'll come back to that in just a moment. When righteous anger shifts from passion about God's glory, God's name, and God's values to anger at sinners who need a Savior, it's become sinful. We can say it this way. Don't let anger turn the mission field into enemies. So a little, little excursion here. How, how do you know if your anger is righteous? Can we just test that really quick? How, how can you know if it's righteous? Let me give you four little subpoints here. Righteous anger, first of all, righteous anger is not punitive. It's not punitive. It doesn't enact punishment. God will punish every evil either on the cross or in hell. Righteous anger does not assume the position of God to be the punisher of evil and evildoers. Righteous anger is not punitive. Secondly, righteous anger is not vengeful or revengeful. Romans 12, 19, never, that's a big word, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath, the anger of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In Luke 6, 28, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you, who mistreat you. He doesn't say, get them back. Be angry at them. Matthew 5, 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't be angry. Don't hate them. And then chapter Romans chapter 12, verse 20, which follows on what we read a moment ago. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Righteous anger does not seek payback evil for evil. A third little subpoint on how you tell if 
your anger is righteous. Righteous anger waits on God's justice. In other words, righteous anger has a theological trust in God. We see this in the life of our Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So even Jesus, who could have, who could have come off the cross and said, this is true injustice, this is absolutely wrong, this is the apex of sin, had a bigger theological perspective and kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Righteous anger waits on God's judgment. Even in the consideration of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham prayed, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal, act justly? In other words, even when you have righteous anger, you trust God to work this out the way he does. We're not trying to enact our own justice. Just because you think you're right doesn't mean you need to fight. Yes, Christians are called to hate what God hates, love what God loves. However, nowhere in the Bible are we called to assume God's position as the ultimate judge. But it is right, it is good to be angry about the evil in our world, angry about injustices, angry about the abuses that we see. It's right to be angry about that. But that anger, even that righteous anger, must, must exist with a modicum of self-control. We'll come back to that in a moment. So, first imperative to temper your anger, control righteous anger. Number two, put off sinful anger. Put off sinful anger. He says next, and yet do not sin. This is not this, this general admonition of where Paul says, hey, do not sin. I mean, John says that in, in some ways, but of course Paul would mean that and say that, but remember, every phrase has a context. This context is be angry, and yet in your anger, do not sin. Don't have sinful anger, put it off, which he will say explicitly down in verse 31. Let bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor and slander, be put away from you. Let it be put away from you. This is also an allusion to Psalm 4.4, the admonition not to sin is not a general command, but in the psalm and in here in Ephesians 4, the context clarifies that we are not to be sinning with our anger, not having sinful expressions of anger. Paul is crystal clear about this. The context is about anger and not to sin with our anger. Now, this sinful anger, this species of anger is self-defensive, 
self-serving. It is the uncontrolled emotional response to others because of something done to you. Uncontrolled emotional response because of something done to you. Oh, you may not have an outburst, but it eats away at your heart. It's out of control. Jesus was so clear about this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, the great court of, of heaven in this context. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. We all acknowledge that murder is wrong. Jesus says, if you're angry, you are as culpable before God as if, as if you had committed murder. The prohibition against sinful anger is pervasive in the scriptures. We, we literally could be here for the afternoon talking about prohibi the prohibitions against anger just in the book of Proverbs. And we could be here this week looking at the whole Bible and what it says about anger. James 1, 19 and 20, I alluded to it earlier. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now listen to what he says. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's sinful anger. Proverbs 19, verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Your sinful anger can generate anger in others. Proverbs 22, verse 24, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. In other words, don't maintain an ongoing friendship with someone who doesn't control their anger. Psalm 37, verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. So what do you do about sinful anger. All of us know what it's like to be angry. Look, I'm, it seems like it always happens on 435. I'm studying this, this week and left a session where I was studying. I'm on 435 and I get cut off by this guy and my initial heart was, oh, brother. No, it wasn't. My initial response was, what are you doing? Don't you know how to drive? I do. Better than you. And then I remembered what I do for a living. And you know what I actually thought? I thought, what if I pulled up next to him and said, hey, dude, and he shows up as a guest to church this week. 
Oh, I remember you. That's good. <laughs> Anger can grab you so fast. It's like a reflex. So it's not, Paul doesn't say, hey, don't, don't have sinful anger. He says, put it off because you already do have it. It's already there. How do we control it? Well, listen to this list you're very familiar with. Galatians 5, verse 19. Your life is either generated by your intuition, your flesh, or it's generated by the Spirit and the influence of the Spirit of God. The deeds of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, being enemies with people, that usually involves anger, strife, involves anger, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, all connected to anger, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. Listen to how serious this is. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I hear people sometimes justify, well, I have an anger problem. That's my besetting sin. Well, all of us can have a sin that we struggle with. But if, if anger dominates your life, if you have no control over it, Paul says, you don't go to heaven. You say, well, give me a balance to that. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Hard to be angry when you're loving. Joy, peace, patience, slow to anger, same word. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Self-control. So part of our growth as Christians is learning not to sin with our anger and our reflexes of anger. I, I get it when you hit your, your thumb with a hammer and you have an, a, an anger and you, you want to hit that nail even harder. What do you do? Can I just give you a real simple... Stop and think. Stop and think. We usually fall into anger because we are following our emotions. What's our little, little way we preach to ourselves, asking what I feel, what do I think, what do I know? You got to get to what you think and what you know to be true. Part of growth as a believer is controlling the emotional reflexes of anger that well up in our hearts. It's learning to recognize sinful anger, put it off, put it away. And we'll have a lot more to say about that when we get down to verse 29. Put off sinful anger. This is a surprise. Number three, limit all anger. Righteous and unrighteous. Limit all anger. Do not let the sun go down on your righteous anger. Doesn't say that. On your sinful anger. Doesn't say that. It says on your anger. Paul's just mentioned two kinds of angers, righteous and sinful, but he does not distinguish between the two when he commands us not to let the sun go down while remaining angry. You ever thought about this? Jesus got angry, righteously angry. Remember when he goes in the, uh, the temple, they're changing money, they've turned the, the temple into a, a profiteering racket, and he dumps over the, the tables, and he's demonstrated righteous anger. 
Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't walk around like that all the time? Righteous anger has a statutory limitation. It doesn't keep on going and going and going. Paul informed us that not all anger is sin. However, Christians should never be consumed by anger, even righteous anger. I have seen those who are right, righteously anger, angry about the right things have that anger consume them, and it becomes sinful. No kind of anger should be carried over into the next day, or the devil will be given an opportunity, as we'll see in a moment. It doesn't mean we stop being angry about the unrighteous things. Look, we're righteously angry about abortion and murder and injustice, corruption. But if you keep feeding that anger without there being any kind of off-ramp, if it keeps going night, overnight, 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 day after day after day, it can morph into unrighteous anger with self-justification. Look, Jesus was angry, righteously angry at the right things at the right time, but he didn't walk around as an angry guy. Have you read the Gospels? Kim and I were taking our premarital from a dear friend, Stuart Scott, who remains a dear friend to this day, Stuart and Zandra. And he was teaching a class, and we, we sat in it. And he suggested, based on this verse, to us as, as engaged couple, he says, I want to encourage you to, to think about making a commitment that you'll never go to bed with an unresolved issue. So, being young, dumb, and in love, I just went, yeah, that's good. I'll do that. I'll do that. So, on our honeymoon, I still remember, we got on our knees and our first prayer together was, God, we want to make a commitment to you that we will never let a, an unresolved issue go overnight. Well, let me just say that that, that commitment in almost 30 years has never been violated. By God's grace and Kim's godliness alone, it has never been violated. We've never gone over now with something unresolved to his glory and his doing. But it has morphed. It used to be we're, we're not going to go to bed with an unresolved issue. And then it became we're not going to go to sleep with an unresolved issue because sometimes pillow talk generated some unresolved issues. And then it became, thanks to my sweet, dear, precious Kimberly, we shouldn't leave a room with an unresolved issue, which took away my best play ever, which was pout and leave. Then it morphed when kids came, that if we got into an argument in front of the kids... We had to get out of the argument in front of the kids, which meant itemizing sin and asking forgiveness. We didn't want our kids to grow up. Well, mom and dad are having, having a tough time. They're asked to leave the room, and they come back you know, 20 minutes later, and they're hugging. What happened? Almost always that includes, included dad 
having to say in front of mom, will you please forgive me for X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, N, G, H, I, J, K, any on, on, on. Can I encourage you, married couple, friends, don't let the sun go down on your anger. When things are allowed to fester, when things are allowed to take heart, root in your heart, your memory becomes clouded, your, your passions become inflamed, you begin adding to the list of offenses. It, it, it's a nasty, ugly growth. Romans 12, same passage we alluded to earlier in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Number four, prevent opportune anger. Prevent opportune anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. This is Opportune anger. He, gets, he takes the opportunity in our anger. When we get to chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, we're going to study the most detailed account of how to engage in spiritual warfare in the entire Bible. Actual instruction on how to deal with the supernatural, the demonic realm, the satanic realm. Paul's going to outline for us how to deal with the devil and the demons. Verse 27 anticipates that discussion. Paul's point here is as epic as it is foundational. Sinful, excessive anger can offer Satan a base camp for operations in our own hearts. We're going to be further acquainted with the spiritual world and its realities in verse 30. We learn we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 18, we can be filled with the Spirit. There is a spiritual reality in this room right now, in and around your life that you don't see but exists as much as your very life. Do you believe in demons? Do you believe in the devil? Paul did. And if you remain angry overnight, you're giving him an opportunity for operations in your relationships and in your life, which is why he will say in verse 31, put aside, lay aside anger. There's a cosmic conflict existing all around us. We see that in Daniel 10 where the, there's a conflict between angels and demons. There's support for a believer that can come from angels. Psalm 91 verse 11, he gives his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. There's an aggressive attack from Satan and demonic creatures on believers. Lord said to Satan, Job 1, 7, where'd you come from? He says, just walking around on the earth, roaming about on the earth. Doing what? 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, walks around, prays around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How does he devour someone? We find out in Ephesians, it's getting in your anger. Our struggle, as we'll see in chapter 6, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are in a cosmic war with Satan and demons. And when you maintain sinful anger, you're giving him a base camp in your heart to do all sorts of unintended and sometimes intended 
harm. Don't let anger fester and reside in your heart. Steve Boss says it like this. The church is a portal to the realm of heaven and of eschatological realities that must be kept in mind by its members for the enemy of peace and the work of God wants nothing more than the church to be torn apart with fury, tumult, hostilities, divisions, and all other malevolent effects of unresolved anger. End quote. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. He has control over his anger, control over his temper. All anger and the life of a godly believer is under control, self-control and the control of the Holy Spirit. It's not possible to have uncontrolled anger if the Holy Spirit is producing self-control, gentleness, and patience. B.B. Warfield famously wrote, it would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong indifferent and unmoved. And we shouldn't. We should not be indifferent and unmoved when we see unrighteousness and injustices in our world. But we have to be careful that that righteous anger doesn't become unrighteous anger. And then when unrighteous anger is welling up in our emotions, our hearts, a reflex of our displeasure and perceived injustices, that we take it to the Lord. We stop and pray. We think and we base our actions on what we know, not on what we feel. Jay Adams writes, anger is the emotion that has been given by God to attack problems. Pretty good. The energies of anger must be productively released under control toward a problem. Anger must be directed toward destroying the problem, not destroying the person. Anger, like a good horse, must be bridled, end quote. That's helpful. Oh, how how are you doing? What makes you mad? What gets you angry? What keeps you angry? Are you under the control of the Spirit? Remember, the fruit of walking with the Spirit is that you have self-control. You don't do self-control to walk with the Spirit. You walk with the Spirit, which produces self-control. Remember, (laughs) Paul doesn't say, if your problem is anger, deal with it. He tells everyone, put off anger. It's a part of our spiritual DNA that we inherited from Adam. It's also a part of our new life in Christ to be angry about the right things, to let there be limits to that anger, and to avoid sinful anger and not justify it. Not give self-justifications for it. There's a lot more to say about that, but fortunately, Paul will give us that opportunity down in verse 31. This is not just a tag at the end of the sermon, but you can't control your anger without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
if you want to know what it means like, what it means and what it's like to know God in flesh, to have a relationship with your creator, to be saved and forgiven from your sins, to have hope for life after death, we would love to explain what it means to believe the gospel, that Jesus, good news that Jesus has given. Our prayer room is going to be open in a moment when we dismiss uh, Dennis and Kathleen will be over there. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. If you have any questions, they'd love to be able to talk with you, even to bear a burden with you. Please don't hesitate to take advantage of that. Again, guests, you can stop by that uh, curved desk. We'd love to give you a book just as a way of saying thanks. Remember, next week, second service starts at 10. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this clear admonition. Help our hermeneutics to know how to interpret and apply what you say. Father, we're all angry. We get angry so easily. Forgive us. Like your son, help us to have appropriate righteous anger at appropriate moments for appropriate reasons, but to never let that last and develop into unrighteous anger. And all of us are fighting sinful anger that lives in our unredeemed humanness. We want to walk with you so that we have self-control and are slow to anger. In Jesus' name, amen.